It's time for News with My Dad. For sure, we're talking with the news with my dad. And on the line, playing the role of my dad, coming at you live, is in fact my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. All of a sudden, you went away. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I do have a shout-out, but I want to first answer your first question, which was, how am I? I'm a little pensive because, you know, the, the Oregonian carries a, a this day in history, and I was reminded that 55 years ago today, your mother and I were in Peru. And the reason I know that is because we were in Peru when they had the big blackout in the Northeast, so we avoided it, and we learned about it in the Peruvian newspaper. And that just reminded me. But I have a shout-out. My shout-out is for Van Jones, the MSNBC commenter, who, who allowed his honest emotions to show as he was expressing his gratitude to the 74 plus million Americans that voted to evict the present occupant of the White House. And it was a very moving experience. I'm just shouting out for him. And I also want to shout out for Judge Emmett Sullivan, federal district judge, who told the post office that they had to start sweeping postal places in 12 different places because ballots weren't coming in. Let me tell you, there's got to be a heads will roll at the post office to try to undo the damage that DeJoy and his Myrmidons have been doing. And Before we jump into the news, want to just acknowledge the passing of Alex Trebek, the Love Jeopardy host, and to tell people if they don't know it, that day after tomorrow, all National Park Service areas will be free. So if you've been wanting to visit a national park or any other service area managed by the National Park, do it on Wednesday. All right, Dad. Well... It is no longer news because people know that it is true, but there has been announced a new president-elect of the United States. The stock market likes it. Jumped up to 29500 today. After the early results already last week, it had its best week all year. Now it's about to do it again, it looks like. What is your reaction to the election result? Well, it's a mixed bag. I am very, very relieved that... The vote was 74 to 70. I am frightened that there actually were and are 70. I 70 was, million people voting for Donald Trump, you mean? Yep, that's what I mean. And 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 really concerned about the division. There's so many divisions, obvious. The religious division, very, very high. Uh, the religious division, I, I, I suggest, is probably not good for the future of the the right especially the far right of this country because i think as as science grows and as more and more people become educated they realize that an awful lot of the claims of just all the traditional religions are hard to support as historical fact but uh, but that's of great concern to me the fact that uh, five Democrats in the House have definitely lost, and there are several others who are likely to because the vote hasn't been counted yet. But uh, Georgia, there's one thing I can tell you for sure about Georgia. If you have a chance to buy stock in a Georgia television station, or maybe a Georgia newspaper, or maybe even a Georgia printing company, this would be a time to do it because in the next 60 days, there is going to be so much money spent in Georgia 
on both sides of the Senate races, it will make your head spin. Now, the registration deadline, if you want to vote in the Georgia special, the Georgia special election happens in January, two U.S. Senate seats, meaning control of the U.S. Senate is going to come down to that state, which was a Democratic state until the signing of the Civil Rights Act, and then was a Republican state, and just voted for Joe Biden by a whisker. Now we'll have two U.S. Senate races. If Democrats pick up both of them, then there will actually be a chance to pass legislation in a Biden regime. If Republicans win either one, Mitch McConnell will be able to keep any Biden proposal from going to the floor. Everything is riding on what happens in those Georgia Senate races. And if you want to vote in them, you need to have moved to that state and registered by December 7th. I looked it up. December 7th is the deadline to register to vote a day that will live in infamy. December 7th. 2020 is the deadline to register to vote in that January special session. I figure 100,000 people move there, and that could that could tip the balance. It's, it seems worth it. The the Democratic well well the Democratic Party in Georgia, but but especially especially David Perdue's opponent uh, Ossoff should be really 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 grateful to Don Blankenship. Does that name ring any bells? It rings bells, but not clearly enough for me to capture the memory. Don Blankenship was the the coal company magnate. Oh, yes. Who spent a little time in jail for, for all kinds of bad conduct. But the reason they should be grateful is that he ran a third-party race for that Senate seat. And he got over 1% of the vote, and Purdue didn't get 50% by just about 1%, and almost certainly Blankenship's votes would have gone to Purdue. So... It's hard for me to see. The challenge, thank the, you, Don Blankenship. The challenge I see, though, is it's hard for me to see the... Uh, well, no, Don Blankenship, though, wait a minute. No, Don Blankenship was the guy I thought ran in, he, he ran, he was running in Georgia. I, for some reason, I thought he was in, he was a Kentucky guy. I thought he was the guy that ran against, uh, I thought he was the guy that ran against, um, Mitch McConnell and called Mitch McConnell, uh, yeah, yeah I think he moved and went to Georgia. Oh, wow. All right. So the challenge I see, though, Dad, if we're looking ahead to Georgia, and I'd be, I'd welcome people's text this morning. It's a good morning to text. A challenge I see. What is the dynamic in a general election that's going to change to give Ossoff and give Warnock a chance to win those races? Already, the Republican candidates in those Senate races edge the Democratic candidates by a little bit. Not enough to win outright, but by a little bit, nonetheless. And trying to think about what might change about those dynamics, it's not clear to me. It would seem like, like, why would any of them do better than Biden did? Why would they do better than they did this time? Why would voter turnout be higher in the January special than in the November main show? Turnout would seem to be benefiting, traditionally benefits, better turnout benefits uh, Democratic Party candidates if that turnout includes voters of color, that turnout includes young voters. Can you think of any dynamics, Dad, that shift that make this not a foregone conclusion? Well, uh Prediction would be a strong, too strong a statement, but suspicion or possibility I'm willing to express. First, the possibility that DDT will continue to make a horse's rear end of himself towards refusing to acknowledge his defeat, and he actually will tr- get cases as far as a judge, and the judges will universally throw out his stuff because they don't have any facts to support it, which is going to make him and his apologists uh, more and more, look more and more ridiculous to the folks who were in the middle, who voted for, for uh, Biden, but uh, who did not vote, uh, but who voted for the Republicans, and were thinking, gee, those people, second, I think that you're going to see Representative Clyburn and others really, really, really go to work 
to turn out the black vote in Georgia. And if they can get the black vote just to where it was this time, because the vote is going to be smaller. I don't think however much money is spent, I don't think they're going to be able to get as many people to vote on either side total as voted for the presidential election. It's just because that's that's the the nature of the difference between a presidential race and and a Senate race. And the but the other thing is is going to be the ground game, and the Democrats are going to have to put on their masks and start knocking on doors, which uh, because of the COVID, the Democratic Party by and large was was following the guidelines in states saying do not do things to spread the virus, but uh, the Republicans did not, and I think that had a lot to do with the Republican turnout. They're going to have to knock on doors, and certainly they're going to have to call phone numbers and Speaking of COVID, well, hold on before before you get to a third thing, pa, Dad. Hold on, Dad, Dad, Dad. Pause for a second. Uh, before we move to another topic, I want to stick with that for uh, a I'm moment. Not, I don't want to move to another topic. Uh, I don't want to stick on Georgia for a moment. Hold on, hold on, Dad. Hold on. The uh, uh, before we move off from Georgia, the uh, we have a we ought to give a sh- praise. We got a text in about it. I ought to give praise also to Stacey Abrams in the uh, New York Times today as well. Uh, 800,000 new voter registrations. I didn't realize it was that many. I knew that she had worked really hard in building a new electorate in Georgia, but I didn't realize it was 800,000 votes. So if we're going to shout out Don Blankenship, we even more so oh, yeah, should be no shouting out Stacey Abrams. And, and the the other thing is, the other thing that I was going to go on to add in Georgia, but but just saying that when we're done with elections, I got a lot of COVID stuff we need to talk about. The other thing is that the, the, the taste of victory is a very potent taste. And the attention that Georgia has already received and is going to receive after the 10,000-vote margin that uh, Biden presently has is shown to be more than enough to make it safe against a recount. And people who win like to win again. People who lose often don't want to bother because they don't want to lose again. As we so announced, and, is it, and, other, and other folks have said, of course, Joe Biden has been elected the 46th president of the United States, having passed 270 electoral votes. Only took a few hours for incumbent Donald Trump, Republican Party of Pennsylvania, to claim voter fraud. And they did ask the Supreme Court to intervene. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court allowed ballots postmarked for the Friday before the election to be counted. The Republican Party is trying to overturn that. The state has been ordered by the U.S. Supreme Court to separate ballots that were received after Election Day. Biden received more votes than any president in history, with over 75 million. And the nation saw a record voter turnout with at least 68 percent of eligible voters casting ballots. It was the big show. Biden has big plans early in his presidency to reverse a lot of Trump's work. For example, he plans to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord and the World Health Organization. Kamala Harris becomes the first woman, the first woman of color the first black woman, the first Asian-American woman, the first Indian woman to become vice president of the United States. Dad, any big differences you anticipate? Here is the question, and it's a question that makes me smile. Are there any big differences you anticipate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump's leadership styles? (laughs) Well, first... I'm afraid people are going to have to get used to not receiving a blizzard of tweets every day from the Oval Office or from the East Wing, wherever. Or a golf course or the toilet or wherever you might be. Right. (laughs) They're just going to have to get used to that. Second, they're going to have to get used to somebody who actually listens to smart people and wants the advice of smart people. And it uh, is exemplified by the very, very impressive list of 12 highly qualified experts to start plotting how to address the, the coronavirus, including the guy who got fired because he blew the whistle 
he was on DDT's team and he blew the whistle on what they were doing. Very impressive. You have to get used to that. Uh, there also, also there is going to be someone who really does understand the importance of building relationships between the White House and Capitol Hill on both sides of the Capitol and on both sides of the aisles. And uh, if, especially, especially if the Georgians decide to send two Democrats to the Senate, something that is going to be very different is going to be how Kamala Harris spends her time. Because with a 50-50 division, she is going to have to spend a lot more time than the vice president normally spends presiding over the Senate. Because typically, the vice president only shows up to actually wield the gavel in the Senate when there is an issue on which the vote is so chancy, so dicey, that there might actually be a tie. But when on every single vote there is likely to be a tie, the vice president is going to have to be up there. Kamala Harris will be yet again a member of the U.S. Senate if that happens. That's right. Dad, a question I've gotten, it's a question I've got to listeners. One of the dynamics, of course, is that when we went to bed on Monday night, all the polling models were showing Joe Biden up seven, eight points. He is not winning by seven or eight points. Anywhere. Well, in Oregon. Well, not anywhere. There are, there's, there's, there's states where he does win, but, but across the country, nowhere close. What I am interested in is if our listeners have their favorite speculation. I've got mine. But if they've got their favorite speculation, on the, it can be more than one reason, but on why the gap between Joe Biden and Donald Trump votes is smaller than was anticipated. You mentioned one of those dynamics. I want to see if anybody's got a thought from home. The, uh, by the way, we did get a text saying the Republican turnout could be less because Trump will not be on the ballot. Uh, that's one thing that could change in Georgia. One dynamic that could change in Georgia is that not only do you have Biden, do you have a national election driving, uh, do you have, driving turnout, do you have Donald Trump driving Democratic turnout, you also have Donald Trump driving Republican turnout. That's an interesting concept. Uh, we got another question. Will Mitch McConnell allow Biden to appoint a cabinet? Uh, this is the big question, right? Mitch McConnell has demonstrated no limit, really, to his, uh, to his obstructionist tendencies. Uh, and now he will be emboldened to do more. The uh, challenge is now that the Republican base rewards. We saw it here in Oregon. The Republican base rewards obstructionist behavior. It sounds like, oh, they're standing up for what we believe in. They're standing up for our values. When Republican state senators in Oregon fled the state, had they been found in the state, they could have been arrested. That's why they had to go to the other side of the border, to California, to Idaho, to Washington State. And that was reward. None of them lost in Republican primaries because of that. None of them said, look, this guy won't do his job. This person won't do his job. We've got to do their job. We've got to take them out. They were rewarded. Similarly, anytime Mitch McConnell, I predict and anticipate and fear, stands up against Joe Biden, instead of looking like an obstructionist, partisan, non-cooperator, non-problem solver, he'll look like that's somebody standing up against the tyrannical president who has a Democrat Democratic uh, logo next to his name. So will he uh, appoint a cabinet? I do believe, and so what are the checks? I think one check to it is the Chamber of Commerce still has, not only still, significantly has Mitch McConnell's ear. Shutting down the American government is not something the Chamber, Chamber of Commerce wants. Shutting down regulation, yes. Shutting down taxation, yes. Shutting down any number of things, sure. But actually shutting down the government that creates a crisis of confidence in markets, creates a crisis of confidence among consumers, creates a crisis of confidence among uh, B2B customers, that is the kind of thing that certain power doesn't like. So they probably will try to say, OK, well, why don't you get a little bit of your uh, exact some concessions? And so it'll be a constant back and forth. So, yes, I do believe Biden will appoint a cabinet. Uh, he may have to appoint some interims. And he won't get everybody confirmed that he wants to confirm. But, yeah, I think there still will be a cabinet. 
it brings up a question that I'm going to ask is who do people want to see in the cabinet? And you can text <laughs> that 971-220-597 before we get to that. But again, if you have thoughts about cabinet members, and I have one that came that I thought was pretty interesting. Dad thought it, Dad had a different one with the same first name that he thought was interesting. 971-220-597. But Dad, your thoughts about why the polls were wrong, or at least uh, wrong. Yeah, they, they showed a bigger gap than the ultimate vote count looks to be. Well, I think there are unquestionably several things, but one that I want to stress is that the exit polls are, are quite clear about one thing, and that is that when folks who voted for Trump were asked what was the most important issue that they were concerned about, particularly when they were asked which was more important, the coronavirus and dealing with it, or violence in cities, breaking of vandals, breaking windows, etc., overwhelmingly they said the latter, that that the, the fact of some broken windows and some fire set and some vandalism which resulted, as near as I can tell, in less than five deaths, and and the deaths that were caused were apparently caused by the right rather than the left, at the, while literally hundreds of thousands of people died from the virus. Nonetheless, they saw that as the big issue, the, the more important issue, which just just underlines my hope that the vandals who went rampaging last Monday night and 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 broke windows of of a business that was supportive supportive of black lives matter supportive of of things that needed to be done i just i guess you can't put them in jail and throw away the key but i hope they really get whacked hard if I were going to think about the reasons, and so your the reason you offered it was a little bit like the dynamic in 1968, a an election that would have transformed the country, uh, that was a time when the civil rights movement was in its ascendancy, when the anti-war movement was in its ascendancy. Had you had a Democratic uh, presidency that included some cabinet members, included some members of Congress with that kind of energy, uh, you could have seen a remarkably different United States. Instead, Richard Nixon was elected, and with that, eventually, the dawn of the growth of the modern right wing. Uh, the the South flipped uh, in that election and stayed there for a long time. And the big dynamic in 1968 was the uh, right wing communications apparatus pointing their cameras, well, they didn't have Fox News at the time, at the protesters, at hippies around the country, and scaring a bunch of voters around the country that if they voted for Hubert Humphrey, it would be that kind of energy that ran the country. And and the flip the flip is still if, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Virginia and Georgia were the only southern states yep. that went for the president. Yep. There is still Florida seemed like it might be close. North Carolina looked like it might be close. If you got a place where uh, where North Carolina and uh, North Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, you can see a path where those four states are remain swing states. For uh, Virginia, might just be a blue state now. I think it's probably just blue state now. But where North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida are, are legitimate swing states, then that could change. That could make the South no longer monochromatic in terms of political party. But yeah, it's been forty years. Uh, the with the, which means it's been uh, 10 presidential elections thereabout. It, you said 40 years? Oh, 50 years? It's been 52. 52 years. Holy mackerel. Why do I think it's like the year 2008? Uh, when I look at other reasons, though, so one, and I do think, and you, you've been bringing this up, and I've, you know, sort of teased you that you've been sort of, sort of get off my lawn politics. But as I look at it and as I talk to people, I see that. I saw it absolutely in the mayor's race. That uh, and uh, and Jim Redden of the Portland Tribune said that the he thinks the mayor's race went to Ted Wheeler the day that uh, protesters broke windows of the historical society. People said, "Okay, that's it. We're not going to vote for the uh, the protester friendly candidate. We're going to vote for the protester uh, ambivalent candidate." 
Uh, I have another friend who said no. The mayor's race had probably more to do with the John Isaacs Portland Business Alliance run independent expenditure campaign that just whacked Sarah Iannarone for days and days and days in the final days of the election, drove down her vote count and pushed more people to a third party candidate, uh, and which we had a high percentage. And, of. and and one of the things one of the things we will never because we cannot know because I guess theoretically you could you could canvas every single voter and find out who wrote in Teresa Redford or some other person because the write-in vote was over 10%, whether had there been no write-in effort, would they have voted for Ted or Sarah? Uh, but uh, a case could be made that, but for the write-in vote, Ian uh, Rohn would have won. There are other dynamics of the presidential race that I want to call out in addition to the one that you called out, Pop. Uh, another, it is one possibility, it's just math error. It's just a mistaken turnout model or related to that, uh, just something just something in the polling that's wrong in terms of their turnout model. And that was what was suggested to us by one of our guests last week. Another possibility, and these are not mutually exclusive possibilities, is that people lie to pollsters. And they particularly lie to pollsters when they're saying something they think is embarrassing. And so they might be, there might be uh, respondents to... Uh, respondents to a poll who say, I am voting for Joe Biden or I don't know who I'm voting for when just because they're nervous and upset or they're, they're embarrassed to yeah, say I think, that, I they think wanna, that. that they want to vote for uh, they want to vote for Donald Trump. Also, it's harder to poll now. You have fewer people who respond to the polls. There's so many polls. There's so many questions that get asked. It is harder to reach people on landlines. So many people are cell phone only and don't have published cell phone numbers. And that could also itself have biases. One could imagine. We know that vo- that uh, voters who earn over $100,000 a year, a majority of them voted for Donald Trump. Not a huge majority, but I think it was 55% was what I saw. And one could imagine uh, some number of those Trump voters, those $100,000 a year plus Trump voters, being cell phone users and not being, you know, being systematically undersampled in the uh, in the polls. I think I think another I think another thing though was was really the campaigning in the in the last month and especially in the last two weeks related to getting out the vote that if you if you can get thousands of people to come and be shoulder to shoulder and shout and scream and holler and say how wonderful you are it has I think a ripple effect on the turnout. Of, of the in the communities that those people come from, and the fact that Biden doing the right thing was was not encouraging super spreader events that uh, that hurt. Absolutely, and this is what I was going to get to. This was the lead I was burying. This is the conclusion I was saving for the conclusion. That was there a last minute surge? was in fact there and I the last poll I saw from Rasmussen showed it very a very close race was there and, and of course I said Rasmussen on purpose there a pollster has been Republican friendly for a long time but their polls are going to end up being closer than a lot of other polls could there have been a last minute surge was there a last minute surge because people were sick of COVID was there a last minute surge re- related to the protests uh, was there a last minute surge uh, related to the 31% economic growth in the final qu- in the quarter just beforehand uh, were there sort of policy reasons, or, not, or was it, or and was it, again, not mutually exclusive, due to field? This is the first election ever, I think, when Republicans had a field advantage, when they had an advantage in canvassing, door knocking, reminding people to get out the vote, being there at polling places, a people powered advantage in those closing election days. This is the first time, and I was talking to a couple other political nerds, and this is the first election ever. I, I think they said admit I think ever where Republicans had an advantage. And this it might have been as simple as that. It might it might be, well yeah, it turns out those get out the vote field efforts that include knocking and talking and getting out there and being at rallies and making sure people get that energy. It might be that's worth two to five points. And if that's worth two to five points, you add those two to five points to the three points that Biden's winning already and all of a sudden the polls look accurate. So I those are the dynamics that occurred that occurred to me. If you have others, feel free to text us. We got a question in. What was the margin for uh, how many percent did Teresa Rayford get? I'm trying to find that 
I know the right end was was north was the right end was over ten, but it, but it did. But not, I have not been able to find anywhere where where there are names attached. But since since she was the only person whose name was being bandied about a great deal, I suspect that the vast majority of that ten percent were for her. Alex Zelensky gives us this answer. Shout out to Alex Zelensky. Yeah, thirteen percent went to a write-in candidate, but because Multnomah County elections doesn't publicize the names of write-in candidates. Unless a write-in candidate wins the election, it is unknown and maybe almost unknowable how many of those votes went to Rayford. Uh, I want to compare it, though, to past mayoral elections to look at what the overall percentage was of write-ins versus non. You know, was the right... I got the question last week, uh, not on the air. Was the write-in campaign in the mayor's race dispositive? Uh, in 2012, by the way, I'm just getting brilliant. Like Brian is just brilliant, anticipating my questions. I'm about to say, oh, I should ask Brian. Is Brian just text me a text? Brian, feel free to. Brian, you want to say it? Uh, yeah, you want to say it? Sure. Go ahead. Um, yeah. So it looks like from that same article in the Mercury, uh, Alex writes that in 2012, write-in candidates scored just seven percent of the vote, and in the last mayoral runoff preceding that in 2004, write-ins came in at just. 0.9%, so less than 1%. So it was a very large write-in uh, write-in vote. The question came, was that dispositive? Uh, and and I think it was either yes or close. Right? I think there were, uh, if you had had those 13% that were distributed to their second choice, if we had ranked choice voting, for instance, or star voting, uh, my guess is Sarah Anarone would have gained, the, uh, gained a net 7%, which is what she lost by to Ted Wheeler, I would guess, and maybe not. There might be if you distributed those. It might maybe she'd only pick up four or five points. Uh, so I think there were, but it's hard for me to say. Like the combination of the independent expenditure campaign, right? Wheeler got something like what thirteen campaign finance dings, uh, but then they did this. Then the uh, Portland Business Alliance and and the other and sort of powerful groups in town organized an independent expenditure campaign uh, to uh, go negative on Ianarone. And there, and because the Willamette Week and because the Oregonian uh, were endorsing Wheeler, they didn't really, they really didn't take take that to task. I mean, it was reported, but it was it, it didn't change the tenor of the reporting. And you add that to the third party race uh, at third party candidacy, and I think there's no question that that combination uh, was dispositive in the race. Just no question in my mind. Well, that you gave a long list of things, and I now don't remember a single one. Well, I know you wanted to talk about COVID-19. We had a record day just the other day in Oregon of new COVID cases and double digits. We had 13 deaths in one day. We had uh, almost 1,000 cases in a single day. What are your uh, COVID updates you want to talk about? (laughs) The first thing I wanted to talk about was a little bit more elections. Am I allowed? (laughs) Well, see, this is the problem. You give me too many. You give me too many, and I got to pick one. Let, let's stick. Answer my question real quick. I'll go back to elections. I oh, I just think it's worth mentioning that Arizona, which still has was more and more media are calling it, but but the Republicans so you're not are cover. insisting that maybe there's hope. I don't think there's much hope because less than seventy thousand votes to be counted, over eighteen thousand margin in Arizona, not likely to happen. And Pennsylvania. I think uh, there are going to be a lawsuit in Pennsylvania, but if I understand correctly, the number of votes that were, the number of ballots that were sequestered because they were received after the close of business on Election Day are not sufficient, even if every one of them went for Trump, to change the result. And if that's the case, the lawsuit is not going to get very far in Pennsylvania. And that, and then the other thing was, I just thought it would be fun to speculate a little bit about the cabinet. So, all right, you let's, have such a you have such a wild idea, and I I disagree with one of the specifics of the wild idea, but I like the wild idea generally. All right, I will I will share the wild idea about the cabinet. Uh, we got a we got a text in Pfizer has a vaccine for COVID ninety percent reduction of symptoms. Yeah, that's big news. Yeah, that, Thank that, you. That, that's my lead when we start talking about COVID. Yeah, that's that's big news. And and I people may not know, but I've been studying clinical research. I just finished my first class at Berkeley on on managing clinical research projects. 
and the uh, uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna read the study and know it a little bit better than I you know, I'm gonna try to look at the research and I'll probably understand it better than I would have last year. Uh, and and since, since we've mentioned that, I think since we mentioned that right now, I think it's also very significant that apparently they were not part of the warp speed. They didn't get any federal money. They just went out and did it on their own. So. As for the cabinet, obviously a lot is riding on the cabinet. There'll be big push for Stacey Abrams to get a cabinet position. I think that's one of the reasons why there's a PR effort for her now. When you see stories, by the way, it's not just because they happen randomly, right? I mean, sometimes they do, but very, 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 very often the reason there's a story is because there's smart people or and or connected people and or powerful people and or people just with relationships with reporters who are pushing for there to be a story. And when, so anytime I see, you know, a, a raft of, of uh, sort of positive press or even negative press or somebody says, OK, well, who who is it that's kind of helping to push that story? Who wants that story to happen? And when when I see the Stacey Abrams news, I think I see that in the and that doesn't take away from any of it. But the uh, but I see that in the context of there are people who are going to be pushing for Stacey Abrams to get an important cabinet post. And there will be. It's a, it's a time for star making. It's a time for thinking about who might be the next candidates. Is is Kamala Harris the uh, just gonna, you know, presumptive, automatically going to be the Democratic presidential nominee in 2024? I know it's ridiculous that I just talked about 2024 and we had, don't even have an official result in some, at least in the minds of the current president. I know that. But there's a lot riding on this cabinet, uh, on these cabinet picks. But yeah, I do have a wacky idea. It wasn't my idea. But I find it really interesting. And that was naming Susan Collins. Yes, Susan Collins, Republican senator from Maine. Naming Susan Collins, Republican senator from Maine, secretary of state for these United States. Now, you could offer any position she wanted. But the advantage of that, to be very clear, you have two advantages. One, it projects a bipartisan cabinet. says, yep, Joe Biden says he wants to unite the country. Here's how he's going to do it. He's going to make sure he doesn't have an all-Democratic Party cabinet, and he's going to have a moderate Republican, or at least one that is named as such by the media, uh, to be in his cabinet. The other thing it does is it opens up a U.S. Senate seat in Maine, one that a Democrat in a special election could win, giving Joe Biden a chance to actually pass his agenda. Your response, Dan? Well, I, I, I find the idea of having Susan Collins as the Secretary of State not very attractive, if for no other reasons, the Secretary of State is fourth in line for the presidency. And that makes me see I, the thought of her in the White House. Ooh, but... Yeah, but when is maybe, that happen? Maybe, maybe for, for health and health replacing Carson might be a great deal of sense. That, that could be very clever. And especially if Biden sends over his cabinet picks as a list, all on the same document, and, and to have her and maybe maybe one other one other respectable Republican uh, would uh, is is would probably be the right thing to do in working towards trying to break down the huge divides. I, I mean, I think it just makes all the sense in the world. And if you look at and there's not that many choices. There aren't that many states. Where that have a sitting Republican senator, there's the way the U.S. Senate is broken down. You know the, the advantage that small states have, and the advantage that rural states have in the U.S. Senate. There are not a lot of U.S. Senate really for Democrats to control the U.S. Senate. They've got to win some seats with a Joe Manchin-style candidate or in a state, you know, like Montana. They got to pick up sort of a surprising couple of states in order to get the U.S. Senate, because there aren't that many states. You look at the places that are, have any uh, any Republicans that uh, represent them, or you know, they're pretty much Republican states. Uh, I think there might be a uh, there might be somebody in Nevada or somebody. I'm trying I'm trying to think about if there are any others, but pretty much Susan Collins is one. That other ideas for cabinet positions. Anybody else for the cabinet that you either predict or you would advocate for? I for Secretary of State, I want Susan Rice. You're a Susan Rice fan. You've been a Susan Rice fan for a while. Yep. Well, Bright, knowledgeable, sensible, articulate, all the things that you want. 
Joe Biden has said he wants a cabinet that looks like America. Uh, his transition team is getting ready. And, and part of the dynamic that you'll see, and this does get to a little bit of something I wanted to say that, you know, when, when he came out and said, uh, when, he, when he came out with that speech and they did that, that announcement, so, and all of a sudden it just kind of felt like he was the president. All of a sudden it just diminished Donald Trump's rhetorical power. And that's part of the move, right? It is not waiting for Donald Trump to concede, but just going out and doing the business, getting ready to be president of the United States. And that's going to include uh, some regular, and I would predict just about every other day, uh, announcing you know some high-profile cabinet positions that will uh, also just continue this drumbeat of, we've got a new president being elected. Uh, we have a new president getting ready. And let's just be ready. So some of the folks, Politico did an interesting article, uh, Secretary of Defense. There was uh, some of the candidates include uh, Michelle Flournoy, who's CEO of West Exec Advisors, former Undersecretary of Defense, uh, co-founder of Center for New American Security. Uh, Tammy Duckworth and Jack Reed are, uh, are, are on the undercard. Susan Rice is, uh, is considered one of the top picks for Secretary of State with uh, Antony Blinken, another West Exec Advisors person, also Senator Chris Coons, Ambassador William Burns, Senator Chris Murphy, as other possibilities. For the Treasury... But, but you you got, you got to be really, really careful about appointing Democratic senators. You, you Chris Coons be not getting named. Dang sure that, no. that uh, they will be replaced by a Democrat. No, I don't think Chris Coons gets named. Uh, the uh, uh, Treasury, Lyle Brainerd, uh, the Federal Reserve Governor, former Secretary of Treasury, is the leading pick, according to this article. But others include uh, maybe Senator Elizabeth Warren. Also fits into your thing, Dad, if you got to be absolutely sure that would become a Democratic seat. Uh, Melody Hobson, uh, the, uh, Roger Ferguson, Sarah Raskin, Raphael Bostic, other picks uh, for justice for Department of Justice, uh, the head of the head of the DOJ for Attorney General. Uh, Doug Jones is the is the predicted pick here in this political article. There's lots of folks, including Sally Yates, including Tom Perez, uh, Xavier Becerra, a bunch of other suggestions. I encourage people. Yes, I might yes. even go ahead. I, I I think there's absolutely no chance for Warren. No, I don't think so either. I don't think because, I, because I don't think if I understand correctly, the Massachusetts law is that the governor appoints the replacement, and the governor's a Republican. Exactly. I, there was the same reason why I was absolutely convinced Elizabeth Warren wouldn't be named uh, wouldn't be named vice president. Right. Uh, Me too. Here's an interesting pick, and 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 I, Secretary of Transportation, Dad, Secretary of Transportation. There is somebody from Oregon who is one of the rumored candidates and has been a rumored candidate for some time now. Can you guess who it is? Secretary. You'll, you'll slap your head when I say it because you should have thought about it. Um, no, if it was HHS, I would say Kitzhopper, but I can't. I don't come up with a name for transportation. So on the political list is Earl Blumenauer. Uh, oh, sure. Right. He's been rumored. Sure. He's Safe rumored seat. Of, yeah. And of course, in in many ways, in many ways, DeFazio would be a great pick because he is an expert in transportation and has been subcommittee chair for a while and and committee chair. But they won't but, give up the seat. But but he doesn't have a safe seat. Right. And and there have been rumors about this long enough. You got to assume that Blumenauer would like the gig, uh, because it comes up. It's, it seems like every time there's a new president, even every time there's a new transportation secretary. Uh, position to be selected. It seems like Blumenauer's name gets floated. Also, Rahm Emanuel's uh, name is being floated. And another is Mayor Eric Garcetti. Now, here's what I think is interesting about Garcetti. I find California state politics really interesting because running for governor or running for the U.S. Senate in California is like running for president of most other countries. It is oh, yes. such a huge election in terms well, of... What is it? The third or fourth biggest, uh, big, biggest budget in the world? It is an enormous position, and it's also an enormously expensive position to run for. The reason that, the, that Gavin Newsom 
gave up, not not even trying to run against Jerry Brown, wasn't because I think he thought he'd be a better governor than Jerry Brown, because Jerry Brown had had 40 years of building name recognition in a state where that's really hard. And Gavin Newsom, by becoming lieutenant governor, well, he was just sort of the next person, and then it was harder to beat. Coming out of nowhere is really, really hard. And if you think, well, yeah, it's a Democratic state, so they don't have anything to worry about, well, think no further than back to when Gray Davis was governor and Arnold Schwarzenegger was able to beat him. And what did Arnold Schwarzenegger have over Gray Davis? Well, a number of things, Name including naming familiarity. Right. So, so one advantage of the mayor of Los Angeles, if the party is trying to think about how do we want to make sure that the replacement for uh, for one of the senior, one of the, you know, for, for, um, uh, for Dianne Feinstein, at Nine Feinstein is a is a Democrat. How do we want to make sure somebody's really in a really good position to run for that seat? How do we make sure that the next governor of California is also a Democrat? And again, next you'd think the next governor of California would be a Democrat, but it hasn't always been thus. And if it takes huge name familiarity and a hundred million dollars, who's in a position actually to do that? If you've got the person that's already, if you have Mayor Eric Garcetti, who's no longer just a mayor, not just a former retired lieutenant in the U.S. Naval Reserve. Uh, not only just the president of the Los Angeles City Council, but also secretary of transportation. Well, then all of a sudden he might have the kind of national juice fundraising, uh, fundraising juice and name recognition to get there. Anyway, sure. that's the but stuff. The, that's the stuff I want to the, talk about. The appointee, whoever, whoever he appoints will be the odds on favorite to win the election in two years. And, and I do not envy poor Governor Newsom because he is going to be. He is right now being besieged, besieged with expressions of interest by potential candidates and by expressions of support from all over the place. And, and if I were him, I would be tempted to identify all of the truly credible folk, all of them, get, get them all, you know, however many there are, recognize that if he picks one on his own volition, he is going to have potentially one ingrate and all the rest as enemies. And instead, just put them all up on a board and take a dart and throw the dart and pick wherever it lands. We got a text in Adam Schiff for Attorney General. That's an interesting pick. Uh, Adam Schiff, who covered himself in glory uh, in so many people's minds. Uh, in the during the impeachment hearings and in the run-up, that's another question. Adam Schiff for what? For what did he say for Attorney General? Yeah, yeah, that that might make sense. It is interesting as to long me, as, as long as that's a safe seat. It is. It is. Uh, it is interesting to me what uh, what Republican or Republicans will Biden pick? I do think, and and Bill Clinton did this. I do think it is very likely there will be a Republican in the cabinet. I think that. Had and this is my one critique of Joe Biden's, I thought, excellent victory speech. You you shared my view. You you might even advanced it that you thought it was an excellent victory speech. Are you, is that a question? It was. Well, I I did I did think that that it was a a very excellent speech, uh, and uh, I thought I thought your your one critique was was valid my one critique was that i worry biden could fall into the same trap that barack obama fell into barack obama captured the imagination and the loyalty of much of the country when he said we're not just the red states of america or the blue states of america we're the united states of america when he talked about bringing the country together when he talked about unity i nodded at every syllable of that the challenge he that, was way over optimistic about the statesmanship of the folks on the Republican side of the aisle. It allowed for Mitch McConnell to make Barack Obama a failure. Now, if you this was one of the advantages Donald Trump had. If Donald Trump's success was I'm going to do what's good for Republicans, only what's good for Republicans, and I'm going to do what's bad for Democrats, then even if Democrats fight against that, they can say, well, see, because that's they're the enemy. And I'm trying to do what's good for my people and what's bad for the people who aren't my people. And that gave him more support among Republicans than any candidate has any president, excuse me, has ever had. He was the most popular Republican president among Republicans ever, because that's who he appealed to on a consistent basis. Now, of course, 
any there a huge number of critiques of that. They're moral, political, strategic, you know, all sorts of critiques to that. But it has that advantage. The challenge of the Barack Obama move is that it means that Mitch McConnell can say, well, okay, you're saying all this hopey, changey, unity kind of stuff. Watch this. And Mitch McConnell has it in his power to keep you from being successful in your unity pledge. And once you've said, I'm going to be the unity person, and that person says, well, I'm not going to unify, not only do you look like a failure, but then if you turn around and start attacking that person, you can look like a liar. You can look like somebody who's gone against your central values. I would have liked to see Biden include one more additional sentence. Could have been any number of sentences, but something like, and if people decide they're not going to come to the table, that's not going to keep us from fighting, doing everything we can to save the middle class, fight for racial justice, uh, advance uh, solutions to climate change and save us from the COVID-19 virus or whatever. Right. But some sentence that just gave him the rhetorical permission to say, we recognize the fight ahead. We recognize that folks are going to try to keep us from being successful and we are going to push for everything that we can nonetheless. So, for instance, he puts him in a position to do executive orders. And just because Fox News doesn't like it doesn't mean he's violating his pledge to be the unity candidate. It's a small quibble. It's more than a small quibble, but I would have included everything he had, just adding one more, unity, yes, unity, yes, unity, yes, but adding one more sentence to give himself a little rhetorical room. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with that. But I see there are two other chances. One is that uh, he, he, of course, is going to be, at least I assume he is going to be announcing his cabinet picks well before January 20th, and he might decide to offer all of his cabinet picks as a list and if he did that that's a good excuse for a speech to the nation where he could put in exactly what you just said and if he didn't do it then he really does need to do it in his acceptance in, in the inauguration acceptance speech i do think that he will as i said as i led up to this i do think that he is likely to name a republican in his cabinet there is a problem with doing that there are a couple of, there's a couple of challenges of doing that one is it means you're passing over Yet another Democrat, right? Every time, as you said, Dad, you name somebody your cabinet, you're making one friend and a bunch of enemies of people who were, uh, or at least disappointed people who were angling for that spot. And if yep. you picked one Republican, then you bummed out even yet another set of Democrats with giving them another argument. The other is a thing you already pointed out, which, well, if you take somebody out of the, uh, if you if you take out a Democrat from something that's not a safe seat, maybe you open something up. But the other is, you might need to pick somebody kind of old. Because if you name, right, if you if you like, I don't know, name Tim Scott to something, you've then turned Tim Scott into more of a national star. If you name, you know, some Republican who's still on the up, then you've maybe implanted somebody who could be your opponent in the 2024 election or become Harris's, excuse me, opponent in the 2024 election. And so you have to be a little bit careful or very careful about star making. We've got a few more minutes, Pop. What else do you want to make sure we cover? Well, I just, I just would say in follow up to that, that it would be really hard to criticize, I think, a, a Susan Collins appointment if she were appointed to something where you really thought she could handle the job. And I don't think she could handle Secretary of State, but I think she might handle HHS. So, but the, some COVID stuff, we mentioned the fact that there is a vaccine that maybe is going to be ready by the end of December, which is really exciting. Something that people should be aware of. There are some healthcare providers, hospitals particularly, who are starting to sneak in on your bill a COVID item. Even though you are not there for COVID, they are wanting to charge you for the fact that they are having to invest more in PEs, etc. You should be prepared to holler about that. And uh, uh, the vaccine, if we if it works, probably will be great for here, great for first world countries. Going to be harder for second, third world countries because apparently you you have to store it to store it at remarkably low temperatures, and it has to be transported at remarkably low temperatures and it has to be you have to take it twice apparently for it to work but uh, right now cases are at an all-time high but the nice thing is the death rate is is reduced because apparently we're getting better at treating it and while we're talking about treating governor brown has 
announced a pause in several Oregon counties starting day after tomorrow, running through the 25th. And Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows couldn't keep a secret that he caught the COVID, maybe from the president. And multiple people did. Mark Meadows yet again showing that the president was has been a super spreader. The president's team has been a super spreader. Uh, the world erupted in uh, the world erupted in celebration, including in Kamala Harris's grandfather's hometown of oh, yeah, Thula Centerpalm, India. That uh, was exciting. Shortly after, Harris's maternal grandfather moved to Chennai, India, decades ago, where her mother was born. Uh, mother moved to the United States to study at University of California shortly after Merritt married Harris's father, a Jamaican-American economist. Uh, there is one thing, though, Deb, we should give a quick breakdown of the ways that President Trump is trying to prove voter fraud. President claiming impending voter fraud for the last several months. Two days after the election, he called for the vote counts to stop as he saw his leads narrowing. Of course, except for in Arizona, where they were saying, please keep counting. Now the Trump administration wants a legal reckoning. One of their claims is in regards to legal observers due to social distancing measures, claims are being made about observers not being able to see clearly. It's unlikely this is going to be legally pursued because it's based in allegations not yet in evidence. The Trump campaign also alleged that 21,000 votes were cast by deceased people. A federal judge on that case, John Jones, said in response, we cannot and will not take plaintiff's word for it. In an election where vote matters, we will not disenfranchise potentially eligible voters based solely upon the allegations of a private foundation. The president does not believe ballots received after Election Day should be counted. The AP reported the anonymous campaign officials told the voter fraud claims have little to do with the legal fight, but rather they provide Trump with an off-ramp for a loss he cannot quite grasp. We are about to get to Suzette, but Dad, do you have any thoughts about Donald Trump's claims? I, I, I halfway hope that they all very quickly get to the Supreme Court, and this may be maybe my undue optimism at the ultimate integrity of at least a majority of the Supreme Court, but I really think that I, I like to see because because if the Supreme Court were to unanimously say no to all of that crap, it would be a big step in the right direction towards reunifying the country. And there's got to, we got a text in, Will, um, Apparently, Mitch and Joe have a very friendly relationship. Do you think this will help him get things done with his cabinet? <sighs> the challenge is, is that maybe McConnell, maybe this will flip McConnell's feeling on this, but McConnell identified that his primary objective was to make Barack Obama not successful. Now, the fact that Joe Biden uh, won't be running for a second term, uh, maybe that dynamic shifts ever so slightly. But it's still him wanting to make a Democratic president unsuccessful and make Kamala Harris or whoever the next Democratic nominee for president unsuccessful is such a dominant motive that it's hard for me to think of a motive that Mitch McConnell has that is stronger than that, uh, that, is high, that is more important than that. But yeah, it, it, it's, this is going to really put to the test uh, Joe Biden's theory of governance. Joe Biden's theory of governance is, hey, we're going to go on down, we're going to have a drink, we're going to settle this. Like, like, you know, like senators, like bipartisan folks, like the kind of people that ought to run this country. That theory of governance, which, no, this stuff is not being decided based on personal relationships. It is being based, uh, it is being decided based on major power, money, wealth, dynamics. Transactionally. And, and that is the and it's going to be put to the test. If Joe Biden is able to get Mitch McConnell to do some things, uh, that'll be pretty historic. And that's why we will continue to talk about it. One thing I want to say about protests, I know we got to get to Suzette, but we've got uh, protesters through eggs, flares and paint at the home of Commissioner Dan Ryan, who voted against the cut in the police budget last year. About 60 protesters went to his home. Uh, and protesters showed up to his house early, uh, earlier the week before the we the vote took place. Wednesday, Ryan gave a nine-minute speech opposing the cut, claiming it would undermine public safety. Of course, he owes his seat in significant part to Joanne Hardesty, who proposed that, and the vote got moved till just after the election. Uh, uh, Joanne Hardesty said we can d disagree and be upset over these issues, but I not condone what took place at the commissioner's home last night. And those who engage in the acts need to be held 
held responsible. If you have Joanne Hardesty who's coming out and, and criticizing your protest after she just lost the vote, she has every incentive to try to point the attention at Dan Ryan for being an ingrate, at Dan Ryan for not standing up for black lives, Dan Ryan for not standing up to transforming community safety. And uh, But instead, what the protest at his house did, and, and maybe we need another word other than somewhere between protesting and vandalism, something that includes both words, but if you have something that's getting both Joe Smith upset at you and Joanne Hardesty upset at you, as well as every every Dan Ryan supporter, you may be getting attention. But if the purpose of a protest is both attention and persuasion, you might be losing it on the persuasion side. Dad, Dad I think it might be time for a straw in the wind. And I have straws in the wind. Like a straw in First straw in the wind. Steve Bannon, <laughs> who said Fauci and Comey should have their heads on a pike outside the White House, has been banned for life from Twitter. Wow, there is a big straw. Second straw, China has told Jack Ma and the huge conglomerate ANT that they have to halt their IPO because he was not being properly slavish to the Chinese government, and last, last, kind of sad, Portland Kiwanis that were founded 100 years ago during the pandemic has closed its doors. Once had 350 members, it got down to 24 members, and Kiwanis Club of Portland is no more. Well, Pop, I thought the straw in the wind you might give was the Parler, P-A-R-L-E-R, which is a conservative alternative to Twitter that some of our Republican family members have joined trying to be a, another bastion for conservative media that allows it to be an echo chamber rather than otherwise. But, Dad? i got to hope that that's not a straw in the wind. i got to hope that that dies a morning. Well, Bob, we did it one more time. We did it indeed, and we will be back on Thursday.